0: All right, quarterly members' meetings. Baptists and their members' meetings, business meetings. Ours are fun, by the way. Cakewalk. Use that expression, cakewalk. It's an old-timey one, right? That's a cakewalk. It annoyed me because I didn't know what it meant because it sounds like bake sale. I don't know why cakewalk. like, is that Because a cakewalk is like a bake sale. That's pretty easy. Is that what it is? So I looked it up this week. It's not what it is. Cakewalk is a reference to a competitive dance that... African slaves used to perform in the 19th century. Plantation owners, slave owners would watch as uh, the slaves performed these difficult but very smooth and interesting dances. And they were originally called uh, prize walks, but the prize was a cake. they get a big fancy cake. Yay! Well, it's kind of a bummer. You learn that's what a cake walk is, like this, like slave owners making slaves dance for competitively. But after slavery, African-American community, boom, like really latched onto it. Like that's our thing. That's one of our things. And since like we developed the dances, by the way, their dances, they would do these dances. A lot of them would be mocking their slave owners, but like uh, old white guys were too dumb to figure it out. They didn't know what was going on, but they were like, they yeah, were getting made fun of, which if you're, I feel like if you're a slave owner, you're allowed to be made fun of. Anyway, so the, the, it developed into a thing, and then so like later on, like in the late 19th century and after, they would have like competitive even national competitions uh, for cakewalks, right? And, uh, and actually that, that form of dance gave birth to ragtime music. It's like a whole thing. I had no idea. So then I started thinking like cakewalk is hard. Cakewalk's not easy, like oh that's a cakewalk like yeah that's really hard I could never even try to do a cakewalk I wouldn't I wouldn't attempt it because obviously it's dance which I don't do anyways and, uh, and it takes rhythm and and all this kind of stuff is cool and maybe I, I thought maybe it's because maybe it's because the cakewalk was a dance that was made to look effortless by very talented and skilled people maybe that's why. But I wonder if there is some confusion as well for us as we look at Christians that have gone before us or people, and we we see them living the Christian life and experiencing challenges and great difficulty. But to them, to us, it looks like as we watch them, they make it look effortless. They make it look easy, So I think sometimes we look at what other Christians are going through and they, from our perspective, seem to handle it with such grace and such finesse. We think like, oh, that's easy. They have an easier time with it when it's not easy at all. It's incredibly complex and difficult and hard and challenging for them. It's just that something's going on that makes it look that way. And on top of that, I think we are sold a bill of goods that aren't always that honest from preachers that the Christian life is easy. It's a cakewalk. What I want us to see in our passage today is a more honest portrayal of the Christian life. The Christian life uh, is not easy. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening and you're here for whatever reason, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Christian life is not easy. Here's what we'll see in this passage. The Christian life is one of pain and purpose and power and peace. Christian life is one of pain, purpose, power, and peace. That's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. If you are new here with us, we've been making our way through the book of Acts. And at this point in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they have a team of like evangelists, disciplers. They're on what we call their first missionary journey. Paul did three. So he's his first missionary journey. He's traveling around from city to city, region to region. He's preaching the gospel. He's planting churches. God's doing amazing things. But uh, he tends to experience persecution, opposition. Right from from people that don't like his message, and so he was in Iconium, and when the persecution got so intense that his life was being threatened, he's like, "I'm a piece out of here and go to Lystra." So he goes to Lystra, and uh, it's it's calmer there. There's not a whole lot of hostility, so they go there, and they're preaching in Lystra, and they start to get sort of like regionally famous. The, people really are into the, the what they're doing, not the message as much, but the miracles. They love the miracles, and they they start attributing. Godlike status to Paul and Barnabas, which is not not great. They don't want that. But uh, so that's where they're at, and so they're preaching, they're healing, they're gaining fame. Well, persecution finds them, and that's where we start off here in our passage. So, like, this is the first thing I want us to learn from the apostles here, and that is, yes, the Christian life is one of pain. Paul knows this. Look at verse nineteen. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, that's where Paul had been before, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Good times. That is a rough experience. You see, this, this is a better picture of what the Christian life is like than many modern evangelists. I get the idea from some well-meaning Christians and some evangelists that hey, listen, if you will just become a Christian, God will straighten out your life. He's going to straighten it out. He's going to smooth it out. Marriage and trouble, believe in Jesus, boom, going to be fixed. Financial troubles, believe in Jesus, boom, it's going to be fixed. Like, Jesus is the fix-it king, right? If you believe in Jesus, things are just going to work out. Let me assure you, if you believe in Jesus, I promise you, not everything is going to work out in your life. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to hurt. You're going to disappoint. You're going to betray. The, the, The Christian life is not perfect, and it certainly isn't easy. It is one of pain. The gospel does not promise worldly peace. Nor prosperity. The truth is, the truth is, the Christian life is actually complex. It's not simple. Maybe it is kind of a cakewalk in the historic sense, right? Complex, requiring discipline, learning, skill. It's complex. Listen to Matthew chapter 7. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what Jesus says Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Well, that's pretty clear. Jesus seems pretty clear here. Oh, you want the easy way? That's not my way. You're going to follow me. It's not going to be that you're going to go through a narrow gate. And the way to the kingdom, the way to heaven, my way is hard. So you got to know what you're signing up for. That's why Jesus says things like, consider the cost, right? Because following, salvation is free. We're going to talk about that. Salvation is offered free to everybody. But following Jesus, the way of Christ, the Christian life is one of pain. The way is narrow. It's narrow. That means that while it is open to everyone, it is a narrow gate. It is a gate that requires you to deny yourself to enter in. You've got to deny yourself and denying yourself, what are you doing? You're denying your false gods and your idols. You're laying down your, your selfism and your selfishness. You're putting Christ first. You're following Christ alone. The gate is narrow and the way is hard, Jesus said. The way is hard. You've been a Christian for a while, I'm assuming, some of you, many of you. Is Christian life easy or hard? Yeah, it is. It's hard. Not just challenging conviction. You ever experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit? It's hard. That hurts, and you have that coming. <laughs> like you need that. You don't deserve it, right? Because it's actually a grace—the convicting work of the Holy Spirit by which we are pierced and pained in our hearts, where we we are now experiencing what we call godly sorrow. You don't deserve that. That's a gift that God gives you, but it's painful, isn't it? It's necessary, but it's painful. Christian life is hard. Repentance is hard. Letting go of things that you've treasured too much for too long, even sin. Spiritual warfare is hard. And I don't mean angels with flaming and swords and that nonsense. I mean the fight in your own heart and mind over sin and righteousness or belief and unbelief, faith and doubt. That's hard. Temptation is hard. Difficult. We live in a world that we are are constantly tempted by the devil, by the culture around us. And even if we could escape those things, we've got our own heart and our own sin issues. Like you, listen, the monastic movement didn't work in terms of eliminating sin from life because now all you're left with is you and your sin. You eliminate everybody else. You're still tempted. Then there's persecution on top of that. Christian life is hard. Even if you're faithful to do everything right, you can expect difficulties and opposition. Pain. Christian life is painful. Suffering is presumed. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So, like, right? I am bound for the promised land. We were just singing, right? Uh, we're looking ahead. We look ahead to glory, right? When there's no more death, there's no more disease, there's, there's no more sin. It's glory. We're looking forward to that. We're longing for that. But for now, we experience pain. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. Look, This is a given. You are going to suffer. It's going to hurt. But the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that awaits. So suffering is presumed to be normative. Pain is normal. And so let's look at Paul's situation, right? Paul's doing what God has called him to do. He's being faithful and he's escaped persecution. He went from Antioch to Iconium. Now he's in Lystra just trying to preach the gospel, He wants to be faithful, but maybe get a little bit of a break from people trying to kill him. Well, it says that Jews from Antioch and Iconium found him. They've been looking for him. By the way, Paul, what goes around comes around because homeboy was doing this to Christians long before it was done to him. Anyway, they find him and what do they do? They stone him. Now, this is not, okay, so this is not throwing rocks at people. That's not what stoning is, okay? When I was a kid, uh, we didn't have the internet, so we we played games like Throw Rocks. And so we would, like, I would stand on my side of the street, my buddy would stand on his side, and we would throw garden rocks at each other, trying to hit each other in the head. That was the game. I'd get you in the head, boom, win. And, uh, or I had a backyard neighbor, we would do it quarter to corner. We would be lobbing these rocks and everything at each other's houses, and then we hit the house and get in trouble. Like, that's what you do. Had fun. That's not what it is. Like, stoning isn't throwing a stone at somebody. Throwing, stoning is dropping large rocks on somebody's skull to crush it. It's to kill somebody. It's an attempt at murdering somebody. And uh, they, they crush Paul's skull. I mean, they, they stone him. They assume he's dead. And they drag him out of the city. They don't bury him, not because they're busy. It's because in their mind, he's a dishonorable person, a blasphemer of sorts. Thaw him out, let him die, let him be eaten by dogs. The Christian life is, is one of pain. Pain. It's one of pain for everybody. It's one of pain because we live a life of frail humanity. There is disease and death and sickness. There is pain and incompleteness in our physicality, in our regular existence. There's frailty, there's human frailty, and there's also human fallenness, right? Which is different, right? Uh, the, 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 it, it's connected, but by fallenness, I mean like our own sin brings pain into our lives. We all know what it's like to hurt ourselves and to hurt other people because of our stupid, ignorant, or informed ungodly choices. We know what it happens when, 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 it's, when it's directed at us. The Christian life is one of pain because of persecution. So yes, you need to know, you need to admit, and for every Christian, we need to embrace the reality the Christian life is always going to be one of pain, but it's not one of pain only. It's also one of purpose. Look at verse 20. The Christian life is one of purpose. It says, but when the disciples gathered around him, that's Paul, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe." So the Christian life is one of purpose. Why do people quit? Like, why do you quit when you quit something? Everybody's quit something. We quit because uh, sometimes people quit because we're afraid. Right? You'll see people go up like, oh, I'm going to bungee jump. And they get up there and they're like, I'm out. I'm not going to bungee jump anymore. They're afraid. They're afraid. Like, that's normal, right? We understand that. We, we become afraid or fearful of something, and we don't, we don't feel like we can engage in it any longer. Well, fear will back us off. People will quit something because of pain. It hurts. We don't want to experience that. And again, that makes sense, right? Like, we can, we can figure that out. Like, oh, yeah. That's why most of us don't go to the gym, because it hurts. It doesn't feel good until you develop some sick appetite for that kind of thing. And then uh, they go, like, oh, I like it. hurt. Burn. Feel the burn. Like, okay, that's, uh, that's cool. It's good for you. Um, but most of us don't do it because it hurts. Like, like, so pain will make us quit something. And you know what else? Failure will make us quit. You fail enough, and you'll just be like, I can't do it, obviously. I'm never, I'm never going to get this. And you see this in little kids, if you have kids, right? What happens? Well, A lot of them, like, you know, I'll do it. I got it. Like, when I was looking, I'll do it myself. That was my thing. I'll do it myself. Three years old. Do it myself, okay? Try it once. Forget it. I'm done. I quit. Didn't work. I'm, I quit. And little kids will quit, and you, you have to teach your kids, right? Listen... No, you can't do it now, but you can do it later if you keep doing it. Like, if you quit, you will never learn it. But if you stick with it, you will. You can do this. It's just going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. But failure, and moral failure in particular, I've seen this happen in my life, and I've seen it happen in a lot of Christians' lives, where you fail morally, And now you feel like, wow, I look at what I've done. I've done so much or I failed so hard or I've gone so deep in this particular sin. There's no way I can come out of it. We're so discouraged because of our own failure, which is sin for which we need to repent, but it's like we get overwhelmed with it and we just give up and we we say like, "I'm, I'm never gonna overcome this. I'm never gonna get any better. We quit for a variety of reasons. Key to perseverance. When tempted to quit, is purpose. Purpose is one of the keys that unlocks this perspective that motivates us to continue. Purpose, to have a divine purpose in all things, in all situations, even in our pain, to know that this is not something that's happening by accident, to be assured that nothing in our lives is meaningless but that everything has purpose to us, that changes the perspective entirely. Now, we exist not just as Baptists, but in the Reformed Baptist tradition. So we're connected to, you know, Protestantism and and Reformed Protestantism in particular. And so a lot of us are familiar with uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? Question number one, what is man's chief? And it's asking the question, what is your purpose? What is our divine purpose? And that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Presbyterians nailed that one, didn't they? It's pretty good. We've been ripping them off ever since, ever since 1646. We've been ripping off the Presbyterians because they get so much right. Okay, so that's our purpose, right? That's really good. Okay, so we know our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's one thing. Okay, but that's really, for most of us, that's not specific enough. Because it's like, okay, so I'm supposed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? What does that mean? And so then we have these children's catechisms, right? And like in the children's catechism, it'll say, how may we glorify God and enjoy Him forever? And it says, uh, we glorify God by loving Him and doing as He commands, right? Okay, so that's, okay, that's helpful. That kind of that clarifies things. But I find that it's helpful for me, and it's been helpful for other people, to really clarify the context in which we glorify God by clarifying our callings, right? And what I mean is, is, okay, so I'm supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what does that look like in my particular case? We're all different, right? But we can all start at the same place. If we're Christians, we say, okay, so number one, I'm a Christian. I'm called to be a Christian, so I'm called to follow Christ, right? That's one of my callings, like the greatest calling. But like, listen, are you single or married? Because if you're single, then you're called to be single. Don't worry, that doesn't mean forever. It just means for right now, that is your calling. You are called to be single for now, if you're married you're called to be single, right? Or married. Okay. That is not of the Lord. That is not of the Lord. It's not of me either. I'm not taking credit for that. If if you're married, you're called to be married, but it may you may only be called to be married now, right? People die. Divorces happen. So there are these callings in our lives, right? So what does it look like to glorify God and enjoy God in my singleness, in in my marriage? Are you a parent? Then in your parenting, as a father, as a mother, or as a husband, or as a wife, in your vocation, you may hate your job. Your job may be miserable, doesn't pay enough, boss is a jerk. That is your calling, at least for now. So how do you glorify God in You got to look at your callings. It's really helpful. So okay, Purpose changes our our perspective on how we are enabled to persevere because now we get like, oh, wow, I'm not here by accident. This is not meaningless. My job isn't meaningless. My relationships aren't meaningless. My schooling isn't meaningless. My suffering isn't meaningless. My pain isn't without meaning. So we look at Paul. Paul, they try to kill Paul. They think he's dead. They throw him out of the city. The disciples get around him, and Paul, he pops up. Now, I doubt that he popped up like that uh, (laughs) because he just had his skull bashed in. He's probably, I mean, maybe it was. We don't, it doesn't say, but I imagine he's bloody. He's he's probably like, you know, whoa, like, uh, that was crazy. But something happens, right? Like, God brings him back. Not that he was dead, but God restores him. And what does Paul do? He goes back in. He goes back for more, not because he's a glutton for punishment, but because he's, because he's if anything, is a glutton for grace. He wants to be faithful to God. He wants to glorify God in his calling, and he knows his calling is to preach the gospel. So he goes right back in. It's crazy. He entered the city, and then the next day he went to Barnabas and Derb, and they preached the gospel to that city, and they made many disciples. He continues to do the thing that gets him into trouble. He can persevere because he understands his purpose, his calling. It changes. But it's not just purpose. Like pain, that's the reality. Purpose is a given. But if all you have is purpose and you don't have the ability to do it, how does that leave you? Frustrated, right? I mean, brokenhearted, devastated. Like I'm called to do something and there's no way that I can do it. It's almost cruel, but that's not how it works. God clarifies for us what our purpose is, and then he gives us divine power to actually do it. The Christian life is one of power. Look at verses 21 through 23. So it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We can stop there for now. The Christian life is one of power. So Paul has this ministry, right, that God has given him. And in in some senses, it has this emphasis on on being outward, right? He's preaching the gospel. He's reaching lost people. And then they're being converted. And then he starts discipling them and bringing them into churches. And then he moves on. Okay, he finds these lost people. He preaches the gospel, makes disciples, starts to gather them together. And then he moves on. And so that's what he's largely doing, But his outward orientation like that will sometimes shift to be a more inward orientation because he'll go back to those churches to strengthen the saints. Like there's now established churches, or they are almost established churches, and he begins to appoint elders in those churches so that they become functioning local churches. So this, this work that Paul is called to do requires divine power. I mean, just just to do it, right? The, the, his purpose orients him towards the task, right? Okay, uh, I, they just tried to kill me. I'm going back in because I know what my purpose is. Now I don't know about you, uh, but I've been beat up before, and um, when that happens, then uh, I don't want to. I don't want to do what I did to incur that beating, even if it was unjust, even if I was being unfairly picked on as a little kid. Like I want to avoid that person. Paul knows, no, no, no. I know if I know what I did, and if I do that thing again, they're probably gonna kill me again. And Paul would ultimately be killed for this. But he said, I'm going back in. He it's not just it's not purpose that's driving him in. Purpose orients him towards it. It's power that enables him to actually do it. Divine power. And, and, and the key in all of this, so, so what does Paul do? He, 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 preaches, he preaches the gospel, and he goes back to these churches, and he, what is he doing? He's, he's strengthening them. He is strengthening their souls, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. He's trying to get them to persevere, right? Just like he's persevering. And what's the lesson? What's the standout lesson that, that Luke mentions here in Acts? telling them that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. You want to enter the kingdom of God? You want to follow Jesus? Tribulation. Thought it was an end times thing, didn't you? Oh, tribulation, the end times. We're not going to experience that because we're pre-trib, post rath whatever nonsense. No, tribulation is... It's the meat and the potatoes of the Christian life. You're going to experience pain. It's going to be difficult. And so the lesson, one of the lessons that we have to learn is that the the, the road to heaven, right, the the path to the kingdom is marked by difficulty, tribulation, pain, temptation. So he's he's explaining to them what that is, encouraging them in the faith. He's, He's giving us a lesson here, really, that we see that we need the local church. We need each other. I mean, I, I, when I say we need the local church, I don't simply mean we need an institution. What I do mean is that we need the God-ordained means of gathering God's people, right? And that does include a kind of an institution, right? Because there there's structure, there's leadership and all of that. In fact, we see Paul doing this, right? He's going back, he, he's, he's, he's strengthening them in the faith, and then it says in verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So you see, Paul cares about structure, about organization, because ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, actually matters. And note this, by the way, just by the way, because we're a Baptist church, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and most Southern Baptist churches, by and large, do not have a plurality of elders. Elders are pastors, it's the same thing. They have one, they have a plurality of deacons and one elder. But Scripture calls us to have a plurality of deacons and a plurality of elders. Every local church should have more than one elder. We need a, a gifted group of people to serve as deacons and as elders because there are various needs to be met in the church. And while this message isn't about all that elders do and all that deacons do, just note this, that they were appointing elders, plural, in every church, If you only have one pastor in a church, he's either going to function as a pope who calls all of the shots or he's going to be a pawn of some other group of people that have to do their bidding. You need a plurality of elders who function in parity equal authority together. Nevertheless, the point here is that Paul goes back to this task of not only preaching the gospel but strengthening the church. That takes divine power. I mean, what is it that we learn in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when we started, right? Jesus tells the, these Christians, these disciples, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Purpose, calling, direction, right? This is what you're going to do. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't go, hey, man, I got a task for you. No, go do it. That's not what happens. What does he say? You will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the point. It's not just a purpose. It's not just a direction. It's also divine empowerment so that we can do the very thing God calls us to do. And what this means for us is our weakness, our frailty, even our failures cannot stop the power of God. It cannot stop the work of God. God orients us and then calls us to go. He empowers us to do so. In fact, your weakness highlights God's power. Because look at y'all. You look like me. Uh, listen, I, I like to fancy myself a tiny tough guy. I like to think about it like I can handle my business. Like, you know, I'm not afraid of a scrap. If something had to happen, I'd probably get owned. But, like, you know, mentally, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm okay. And I like to think, of, you know, little guy syndrome, right? I like to think like I can handle my business. You know, I'm stoic. I'm tough, right? You know, whatever. Somebody, because my father died uh, just a few weeks ago and my sister before that, both unexpected and sudden. And, uh, and I, I don't cry. I haven't cried since I was 11. Um, that's not a brag. That's not a flex. That's embarrassing. I don't know what it is, but something growing up is kind of stoic, kind of a way of being a, being a man in my family. It's kind of the way it was. You, know, you just take care of your business and whatever. But when I'm honest, when I'm honest and I look at myself, I recognize like, uh, you know, I don't cry because I'm actually weak. I'm actually, I'm actually frail. I'm actually afraid. And, and when I, I look at the, the mistakes and the failures in my life, I realize, like, wow, you, you are really weak. And, and I, I, having followed Jesus now for a, a three decades plus, um, I've come to the conclusion that I'm actually the weakest person I know. That's not what I like to say. But I know that I'm the weakest person I know because I know me better than I know any of you. And as weak as I understand you guys are, I'm beating you on this one. And when you see your weakness and you're tempted to just despair and give up, take courage because God's power shines in our weakness. We learn this lesson from Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, I boast in my weakness because it means no one can point at me and go, look at how awesome he is. They have to see God at work. God gives us Power. So the Christian life, yes, it's one of pain, but it's also one of purpose, it's also one of power, and yes, it is one of peace. Now, I want to make this point not because it's in this particular passage, though it clearly is throughout the book of Acts, Um, and we're going to see it uh, really come to life here in, in another couple of chapters. The Christian life is one of peace, so long as you understand that peace is not the absence of conflict or pain. It is the presence of God. It's the presence of his grace. It's an awareness that he loves you and that nothing can separate us from his love. God is with us. This changes everything. These funerals, right? We've done a number of them uh, this past year. I'd like to read Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. The presence of God is our peace because we're not alone. We have purpose, we have power, and God is with us, his presence. So, yes, there is peace to be had in this life in the midst even of our pain and suffering. John chapter 14, listen to John 14, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Jesus says, oh, no, I'm giving you peace. I'm going to give you peace, and it's not going to be like like how the world gives. I'm going to give you something that is true, that stays, but it isn't going to be worldly peace. It isn't going to be prosperity or serenity in all circumstances though sometimes we are blessed with such seasons and we praise God for those as well. But what does he do? Jesus says, listen, I'm going to go, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And with that, I'm giving you my peace. How does it work? Because God is with us. Like a little kid is a whole lot less afraid to go into the haunted house, right? If dad is holding his hand, if mom is holding him up in her arms, it's like, oh, no, I, I don't need to be afraid because I'm not alone. In fact, I got the most important, strong, uh, wise person in the world with me. Now this, this is what we have. Or Listen to John, John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, Jesus said, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let that sink in. Jesus said, oh, no, no, listen, uh, you're going to get two things. You're going to get peace, but you're going to get trouble. Now, you're going to get peace from me, in me, through your union with me. My presence with you, you will have peace, but from the world, you'll get tribulation. So you're getting both. In the midst of conflict, turmoil, death, persecution, I will give you peace, a kind of divine confidence that that comes from the awareness that God is with us and for us. And Jesus says, don't worry about it, because I've overcome the world. I love this. He's like, I've overcome the world. You see, whatever the world is going to throw at you, the, the, the temptation, your own failure, whatever the world is going to throw at you, persecution, taking your life, taking your loved ones, whatever the world is going to throw at you, Jesus says, I'm not going to match it. I'm going to beat it by a million miles. I'm going to give more grace than you can possibly imagine so that you can actually persevere with power in the purpose that I've given you. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, John says this, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so everyone who is born of God, that is, everyone who is born again, overcomes the world. How? John says it's by faith, not by power. It's not by winning a culture war. There's merit in fighting in our culture for things that are good. But we do not overcome the world by fighting like the world. We have overcome the world by faith because our faith is in Christ who defeated the powers and the principalities and the devil himself through his life and death and resurrection. There is power that gives way to peace because God is with us. So the Christian life, if we're going to be honest about it, the Christian life is one of pain and purpose and power and peace. Christian life is hard. Most Christians I know are honest about this and and they, they seem to understand it because at the very least, you'll learn it the hard way once you start following him. But the Christian life is not just hard. It's also blessed. As long as you understand blessed to mean something different than uh, worldly comfort, prosperity, or provision. We tend to talk about like, oh, I'm so blessed. I got that car. God really blessed me. I got the job I wanted. God blessed me. And that's fine. I think any good gift you could consider a blessing from God. But the real blessings are the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, divine empowerment to do the things God has called you to do. I mean, that's, that's blessing to know that you're loved by God and led by his spirit. That's, that's a blessing, especially, especially in your pain. Look, um, I said it before, salvation will cost you nothing. Salvation is costly, right? And by salvation, I mean the forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation to God, your acceptance by God. It costs you nothing because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. So this is why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace, that is God's mercy and favor, that is undeserved. We are saved by grace through faith, right? So faith is belief, the open hands of acceptance. We receive God's gift or provision of salvation in Christ. We receive it. We don't work for it. We don't earn. It. That's what Paul says. For we have been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it is not as it is not of works, it's a gift. There is no boasting in ourselves because God gives it. So salvation is free for us. It costs Christ his life. It led to his death, demanded a resurrection. Now, now Christ led and, and fulfilled the, the covenant that he made with the Father in all of that for us. Salvation will cost you nothing, but following Christ may cost you everything. It may. Now, most Christians have an experience of both loss and gain, even in the worldly sense, right? God gives you good things, and God takes away things. Job learned this the hard way, didn't he? The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away, but what did he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. We praise God who gives us grace to follow him even in the midst of of difficulty. The Christian life isn't easy. Following Christ isn't easy, but God gives us grace to endure and to even flourish. That's why some saints make it look easy. It's not because it is. They are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They are struggling with all of their might according to the power that God works in them. They're struggling in their life but they flourish in faith, and so it may look easy to you. If you're seeing this in others, then I would encourage you to talk to those Christians who make it look easy because one of two things is happening. They're faking it. Or, in my experience, more likely, they're just flourishing by God's grace, and they will tell you so. It's not because they're strong. It's not because it's easy. It's because God has been kind to them. My encouragement to us all is... Really, simply this, to look to and stay close to Christ. Stay close to your Lord and follow him. And when you encounter pain, and you certainly will, remember your purpose. Look to God for power. And trust him to give you the peace, the divine confidence to stand in the midst of trials and temptations, knowing that God is with you and for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us more than what we can study and read today in just one worship service. We pray that, that the songs that we have sung and are singing, that the prayers that have been offered, that all of the scripture that we've read, that all of it, Lord, would contribute to a, a deepening of our faith and dependency on you, a greater love for you and love for each other. Lord, the Christian life is hard. We know it. But you are worth it. <laughs> your glory is worth it. Help us to know and embrace our purpose and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.